From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Corey Bova-Wamsgans in northern New York State got the news in a message from his aunt. It was one of the first things she sent out to everybody. She's like, oh, are you looking at the news? You see the news? You see what's happening? I'm like, oh, what's going on? The indictment of Donald Trump. That's what, this hour. Also, mass protests continue in Israel. The stars of a new British rom-com, Rye Lane, Love on the Rebound. A new graphic novel on a memorable teenage trip, and then an ancient Roman scroll reveals a sharp wit restored by AI technology and interviewed by us exclusively right here. First our newscast, it's Saturday, April 1, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Rescue teams in Arkansas are looking for more victims of powerful storms that also hit Illinois and Indiana. Suspected twisters destroyed buildings, flipped over vehicles, and left thousands of residents without electricity. Speaking last night, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders urged the people of her state to rally together. Today has been a very hard day for the state of Arkansas, uh, but the goodness of this is that Arkansas and Arkansans are tough and we are resilient. Uh, and no matter what comes our way, uh, we will get back up the next day and keep moving. Three people reported dead in Arkansas, more than 20 others injured. In Indiana, three people reported dead in Sullivan County. And in Illinois, the storms caused the roof of a theater in Belvedere to collapse, killing one person and injuring 28. Sean Shadel is the uh, fire chief there. He says the theater was packed with concert goers. The event coordinator reported approximately 260 people, counting all people that were there for the event and staff and uh, performers. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is pushing back against House Republicans who are looking into his case against former President Donald Trump. Trump is now set to be arraigned next week on charges stemming from an investigation into hush money paid to an adult film star, as NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports. Within days of former President Trump's inaccurate post on social media two weeks ago that he was about to be arrested, congressional leadership began demanding documents and testimony from the DA's office, which is prohibited by law from discussing ongoing grand jury investigations. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan and other Republicans have kept the pressure up. And now that there's been an indictment, Bragg is swinging back. In a letter sent Friday, Bragg wrote, It appears you are acting more like criminal defense counsel trying to gather evidence for a client than a legislative body seeking to achieve a legitimate legislative objective. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. China's Cyberspace Administration says it will conduct a security review of products sold in the country by Idaho-based Micron Technology. The review comes amid a deepening rip between the U.S. and China over technology. Here's NPR's John Ruich. The announcement from China's Cyberspace Administration is one sentence posted on its website. It says the review is being done to protect the security of the supply chain of critical information infrastructure and to safeguard national security. It gave no further details and didn't say why it was targeting the U.S. memory chip maker. Last fall, the Biden administration imposed controls on exports to China of cutting-edge microchips and the equipment to make them, It also blacklisted a string of Chinese companies and entities that are seen as part of China's military-industrial complex. China has threatened to respond, but so far has taken no substantive retaliatory measures. John Ruich, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Today, one of Boston's busiest hospitals is opening a $600 million facility to provide new beds for patients. But WBUR's Priyanka Dial McCluskey reports that Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center will not be able to use all the new space right away because of staffing shortages. The building was supposed to increase hospital capacity by 10%. Beth Israel Deaconess President Peter Healy says it's a struggle to find enough workers. We will open that as we can staff it. The COVID pandemic drove many people away from hospital jobs, but Healy says things may be improving. We're starting to see hiring getting a little easier. I'm hoping that we are on our way out of this employment problem. The medical center is trying to fill at least 1,200 open jobs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The company decommissioning the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth wants to move ahead with a plan to discharge radioactive wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. Holtec is agreeing to an independent study of the risks, but Holtec says it will not pay for that investigation. The new general manager of the MBTA, Philip Eng, is being urged to start by rebuilding the public's trust in the system. Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce President Jim Rooney says the T must improve how it communicates with writers. They shut down the orange line for a month last year with all sorts of promises that it was going to be better, and it's worse. Um, treat people like adults, communicate, tell people what, what the challenges are, and you will begin to engender that trust and confidence. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston, Rooney said Ang needs to hire a new transportation safety chief. There is concern this morning for the health of a 14-year-old lion at Franklin Park Zoo in Boston. Zoo New England says the animal, named Kamea, is being treated for severe pneumonia and also has underlying chronic medical issues. The zoo says Kamea is starting to show some improvement. It's 41 degrees in Boston with a dense fog advisory in effect until 10 this morning. A rainy Saturday, highs in the low 60s. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. Donald Trump is expected to appear in criminal court in Manhattan next week. He is not only the first former president to face criminal charges, he, of course, is running for president in 2024. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas joins us. Ryan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a real moment in history. Do we know what this arraignment will look like? Well, we know that Trump is scheduled to appear in criminal court in Manhattan on Tuesday afternoon uh, around 2 p.m. Normally, someone who's been indicted will go through the regular booking process. So fingerprints are taken, there's a mugshot, and then the person would head to court to be arraigned and enter a plea. The exact arrangements, though, are often worked out between the government and the defendant's attorneys ahead of time. That's being done now. Trump, though, of course, has the added twist of being a former president. Mm -hmm. He has a Secret Service detail. So we'll see come Tuesday how this all sorts out. Remind us of this case, if you could. So this is the case that was brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. We know that the grand jury had been hearing testimony and evidence uh, that revolves around hush money payments made during the 2016 presidential campaign. At that time, adult film star Stormy Daniels was considering going public to talk about 
what she says was an affair that she had with Trump several years earlier, an affair that Trump denies ever having. Trump's attorney and fixer at that time, Michael Cohen, paid Daniels $130,000 to keep quiet. Trump then reimbursed Cohen that money. Trump's company recorded that payment as a legal retainer, something that Cohen has said under oath was not true. And so the question this case revolves around is whether Trump falsified business records, which would be a crime in New York State. Do you have any indication so far how strong the government's case might be? You know, we really don't. Uh, And unfortunately, that's because the indictment is still under seal. So we don't know what the actual charges are. We don't know how many counts there are in this indictment. Uh, And we don't know all of the evidence that the district attorney's office has gathered over what's been uh, several years of investigating. Uh, I spoke with Harry Sandick about this. He's a former federal prosecutor, now defense attorney in New York. And he said that while we don't know the charges and the full legal theory of the DA's case here, we do know that Michael Cohen appears to be an important government witness. And Sandick points out that, look, Cohen is a tricky witness. And that's because Cohen himself has pleaded guilty to federal crimes, tax evasion, false statements, campaign finance violations. And that last one involves the very payment that was made to Daniels. And so it may be a challenge for the government to show that you know, Michael Cohen is telling the truth. And that's a factual issue apart from the legal issues. Now, the pushback would be that Cohen has told the same story for years since coming out and saying that the only reason that he lied was to protect Donald Trump. But all of this is something that the government will have to deal with if Cohen is called as a witness, if and when this case ever gets to trial. And important to say here, we are still very much a long way off from that. Which raises the prospect that the presidential primaries could be going on when this case does come to trial. Well, the fact that this is all going on with Trump being the leading Republican candidate in the 2024 presidential race is something that we have not seen before. We know that Trump's attorneys have said that Trump is innocent. They say that he's going to fight this case. Trump himself has lashed out about this prosecution on his social media platform. Trump supporters, many House Republicans have rallied to his cause. That's what we've seen in the wake of this indictment. Trump's presumed Republican opponents in any Republican primary have as well. What's unclear, though, is how the broader American electorate, how the public is going to view Trump as a candidate in light of this indictment as this case drags forward. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas, thanks so much. Thank you. NPR's Ron Elving joins us now. Ron, good morning. Good to be with you, Scott. There's going to be a little bit of speculation over the next few hours, days and months, maybe even here. What's the basis for it? We have only the most immediate and rudimentary basis for it, Scott. As Ryan was just telling us, we know about Tuesday. We know roughly 2 p.m. We have some of the ancillary plans. There will be cameras in the building. We don't know exactly where or whether we'll be in the courtroom. But what do we know about that night or the next day? What will Trump do? Let's remember, we still haven't seen the charges in this case. We hear there are around 30, but we don't know exactly what's going to be covered, nor do we know what effect this will have on the authorities in Georgia, where more charges are pending, or the federal proceedings on the documents at Mar-a-Lago, or the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. That's all still up in the air. So I would sooner try to predict what effect the new rules in Major League Baseball are going to have (laughs) than what's going to happen with all these indictments. Take us through the range of reaction among Republicans to the uh, pending Trump indictment. First off, a blizzard of fundraising appeals went out from Trump and many of his acolytes very much milking the moment, uh, portraying the former president as a victim for the ages. And much of the outrage you hear around the country is truly spontaneous. It comes from the heart. Mm -hmm. There's a substantial fraction of the American public that wants 
this man to back as their president and feel he's been treated unfairly. But a lot of the, shall we say, elected office holders decrying this indictment are probably trying to stay in step with their primary voters and their small dollar donors. And they themselves do not want a replay of the last three election cycles. That's 22, 2020, and 2018, all three of which were all about Trump and all three of which proved disappointing for the GOP. Let's, uh, let's move to other news of the week. This will sound harsh, but another week in America and another mass shooting. This week at the Covenant School in Nashville. Uh, for years, Ron, we've noted these events and asked if there are any political or legislative consequences. This occasion any different? Many want it to be, and they cannot believe it could be otherwise. Yet there is little sign that Congress will be any friendlier to gun control than it was 10 years ago after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Connecticut, or just last year after the massacre at Uvalde, Texas. Uh, President Biden called for reinstating the ban on assault weapons that existed a generation ago, but which lapsed in 2003. And since that time, Republicans have shown no interest in reviving it. And when you consider the horror of what happened in Nashville this yeah. week, you really... You really come to an appreciation of how many major stories got obscured by the indictment in New York. The Senate voted to repeal the resolution that supported the war in Iraq two, dec two decades ago. Mm -hmm. Normally, that would be an enormous story. And just yesterday, a court in Delaware decided that the Dominion voting systems lawsuit against Fox News can go to trial and that Dominion has already established that the stolen election claims were false. That means the jury can focus right away on whether Fox reported those claims with reckless disregard of that falsity. Finally, let me ask you about um, Russia has detained a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Evan Gershkovich, uh, accusing him of espionage. Uh, of course, this uh, occurs at a time when relations are strained over the war in Ukraine and other issues. Ron, any sense of why Russia is doing this? Russian President Putin has not had the month that he wanted to have. His big summit meeting with Chinese President Xi did not yield all that Putin wanted. The fighting in Ukraine is piling up Russian casualties at a rate that even that long-suffering population cannot long abide. And then just this week also, the last hurdle was cleared for Finland to join NATO. Now that roughly doubles the length of the border that Russia has with NATO countries. So this detention of an American reporter looks very much like hostage-taking, a chance to put pressure on the alliance and on the U.S. in particular. NPR's Ryan Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. There are nearly 400 million civilian-owned guns in the United States, according to an estimate by the Small Arms Survey. Americans often lament how everyone seems to be looking down at the screen of a smartphone, reading, texting, or watching videos, but in fact... We have more guns than smartphone users. We gripe about the time we spend in cars, backed up along highways and roadways, going to work, running errands, eating takeout between obligations, and lined up for gas. But there are more guns in America than registered motor vehicles. Is that how we see ourselves, a country with more guns than cars or smartphones? There have already been 131 mass shootings across America this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit group that tracks these incidents. This week began, of course, with news of the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. 
Three adults were killed, Catherine Kuntz, Cynthia Peak, and Mike Hill, and three students, nine-year-olds, Evelyn Deakhouse, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kinney. Police killed the shooter. The Gun Violence Archive counted 646 mass shootings last year in the United States. That means that, on average, four or more people, not including the shooter, were shot or killed in a single incident more than 12 times each week of 2022. 646 mass shootings. That's more than the number of movies released in American theaters last year, or triples hit in Major League Baseball games. I spoke this week with Pam Simon. She is a former teacher who was shot in the arm and chest near her heart at an event for Representative Gabrielle Giffords in 2011. Nineteen people were shot that sunny morning, including the congresswoman. Six died, one of them a little girl. Pam Simon is no relation, but we met in Tucson after she was shot, and we call each other cousin now. Pam says when she hears of some new mass shooting, each and every time it sucks the air out of me. I let myself be numb to avoid the full impact of the new horror unfolding. Yet I also feel duty-bound to honor each life. After all, someone prayed for me or spent time thinking about me, an injured person they did not know. All we know, Pam Simon told us, is that they're new members of the club that no one wants to belong to, beginning the agonizing journey of grief. you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear about the state of Israeli democracy after an attempted judicial overhaul that led to major protests. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org tanglewood. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Leila Faldin. We've learned that we can't take our democracy for granted. Journalism in the public interest, journalism that is the heart of WBUR, keeps democracy thriving. Member dollars give WBUR the time to pursue stories that can take months of investigation. These stories often reveal uncomfortable truths, truths that can lead to meaningful change. It all starts with member dollars. Not a member yet? Give today at WBUR.org. You can also give by calling 1-800-909-9287. 
Or again, you can go to WBUR.org. WBUR believes independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, our communities, our democracy. And right now, when you give to WBUR, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. That's right. Thanks to some members of our Murrow Society uh, who gave their money to match your monthly contribution dollar for dollar. When you give $10 right now, that becomes $20 a month. If you give $50 a month, that actually becomes $100 a month. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR. Org. And thanks. And good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. And with me in the studio, it's WBUR's Candace Springer. Hello. Good morning. As Sharon said, this is an exciting moment for us because some of our generous members of the WBUR Murrow Society are giving their money to match your monthly contribution dollar for dollar. So like Sharon said, if you give $10 a month, that turns into 20 This is now the time for you to maximize your gift to WBUR. And you can get in on it at WBUR.org. Or you can also call one 800 you count on WBUR to look at the moment that we're living in. That means deep reporting on all the areas that matter to you, everything that's unfolding in Boston and in the world. And so now is the time to think about how much WBUR matters and to give your support. Um, actually, On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty talked about what her program adds to your local understanding of important stories of our time. We've been turning around a lot of very strong short series on On Point, much more than we ever did before. We've done series on individual voices from Afghanistan and the, and the United States military when the United States' longest war officially ended there. We did a completely new series on how much artificial intelligence is changing health care. That one got a huge response because everyone needs health care. And Hardly anyone who heard the series knew how much AI and machine learning is already having an impact on what the doctor tells you or does or can do in a hospital, for example. So we've done these really interesting, innovative series that work even though we're a daily, quote-unquote, news program. And I think that's one of the reasons why people really like the sound and approach of the new show because I get emails all the time. I get emails all the time from people who say, I like listening to On Point because at the end of every hour, I feel like I actually learned something that I didn't know before. So that is why journalism, that's the journalism that we're asking you to support this morning. Our listeners who give, who provide um, our biggest share of funding, that's you all. Um, and that's why we're asking you to join them. So you can start um, by contributing monthly or giving us a single gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And right now we do have that dollar for dollar match. So maximize your gift. 10 becomes 20, 100 becomes 200. That's right. And thank you if you've already given. If you haven't yet, this is the moment so you can take advantage of that dollar for dollar match. And, you know, we're asking you to make this phone call at 1-800-909-9287 or to go online at WBUR.org. We're asking you because most of the funding that we get comes from you. We're listeners supported and you're listening. And so at whatever amount feels right for you, please make this monthly gift and uh, it will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to the generosity of some members of WBUR's Murrow Society. Uh, they understand how important this programming is, that 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 the money that you provide um, 
That's the money that brings you Weekend Edition. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. The programming, you know, local personalities, everything's very grounded here in Boston, it seems. I think we're incredibly lucky to be in a city that has such a rich public radio program. And I think WBR specifically does a great job of connecting people not just to national news and international news, but local. It makes me want to support WBUR. Support your home for public radio. Give monthly at WBUR.org. So WBUR will always be free and open to everyone, but it takes investment from people who care about it to allow us to thrive. And right now, as we mentioned, we're doing that dollar for dollar match. Our generous uh, Morrow Society members have stepped up to match your contributions dollar for dollar. So give what you can and give now at WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, think about how much you count on WBUR day in and day out, whether it's on the radio or online, using the new WBUR app, listening to podcasts, going to city space, reading our newsletters. There are so many ways that you uh, can and do access WBUR. And behind the scenes in every single one of those situations, there is a fleet of editors and producers and, and engineers and so many people who are making this happen and you know maintaining high standards for quality. All of that, uh, well, it takes a little cash, and we are (laughs) listener-supported, and right now, you're listening. We'd love for you to call in or go online and make your monthly contribution, and it will be matched dollar for dollar, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org, and thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. That's the sound of huge protests in Tel Aviv. Israel has held five elections in recent years, and that's resulted in no confidence votes, failed coalitions, continuing turmoil. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right government attempted a judiciary overhaul, which would give the government unprecedented control over Israel's Supreme Court. This has brought out massive protests and strikes. The Prime Minister put those plans on hold for the moment. We are joined now by Michal Kotler-Wunsch. She is a former member of the Knesset. She served in the liberal and centrist Blue and White Alliance in 2020 and 21. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. I wonder, is the the prime minister's attempt to take power away from the judiciary a sign to you that democracy is in trouble, or do the demonstrations show democracy is healthy? So I'd like to suggest 
that democracy is very healthy in Israel. And I actually think that the demonstrations that we see are a clear indication of that, Scott, and actually demonstrations on both sides. So whereas the last few weeks, 12 weeks, um, have been sort of a rise in demonstrations against this specific reform, in the last couple of days, there have been sort of demonstrations that support the need for reform. And maybe we can dive in a little deeper into that. Well, go ahead and dive, please. <laughs> okay. What we're seeing is actually far, far beyond the specifics of the reform. Um, having been a young lawyer myself uh, at the time that the constitutional revolution passed in Israel's parliament in Knesset as one basic law, that sort of echoed the beginning of a Bill of Rights, but did so very, very partially. That happened in the 90s, that constitutional revolution. And a part of what we're seeing now is actually an attempt to renegotiate the checks and balances between the three branches of government in a healthy democracy. Mm. Israel doesn't have a constitution, right? You are 100% right. Israel does not have a constitution. It has the Declaration of Independence. And I would argue that the fact that that Declaration of Independence was never anchored in law is part of this moment that we've arrived at at this moment of time. Because Israel does not have a constitution, does that does that make the role of the Supreme Court especially critical when it comes to protecting rights? In fact, it has an incredibly critical role. I agree with you. I would argue, as in every democracy, the judiciary, the executive, and the legislative branch have their checks and balances between them. The lack of constitution actually makes this more difficult. And in fact, this incredibly challenging moment very possibly harbors that opportunity. Help us understand the numbers of people who've been turning out in, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. There are reports of hundreds of thousands of demonstrators that have come to the streets to contest allegedly just this specific reform. In my view, it's not just about the reform. To be very honest, Scott, there is a real struggle for Israel's identity. Is it the democratic state of all its people, a liberal democracy? Is it a Jewish law or a Jewish halacha state? Or is it, as it was founded to be according to the Declaration of Independence, the nation state of the Jewish people and indigenous people returned to their ancestral homeland after millennia of exile and persecution committed to equality? Netanyahu's governing coalition says the Supreme Court doesn't represent the popular opinion of the people. What's your impression? A Supreme Court or a court in general should certainly reflect the society in which it rules. And in many, many ways, as Israel is a young democracy, I do think that that is one of the underlying processes that sees manifesting very, very clear anger. But there is sort of a, a, a process in which the majority moderates have been squeezed out. And as a result, the extremities or the more radical voices have been empowered. And some of them are sitting in this coalition government. Prime Minister Netanyahu has been indicted on corruption charges. His trial is ongoing. Is it proper he should be interfering with the or affecting the judiciary at all? Israel's law actually allows an indicted prime minister until he is found guilty by a court of law to continue functioning as prime minister. 
That has been one of the most difficult pieces and I believe has led to that five elections in three and a half years reality. Um, it has destabilized Israeli politics very, very seriously. And even if the reform were to pass, the next government that would be elected would be able to amend the law. Um, and I remind us all that you know, legislation is really something that parliaments have to be the ones that address. Nicole Kotler-Wunsch, former member of the Knesset, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Scott. Battle between mouse and man, mice out of mouse. Mouse might have pulled one over on man. Governor Ron DeSantis had a hand-picked board take over Disney's governing district in Orlando. This week, that board said, we can't do what we were appointed to do because the previous board signed agreements with Disney before we even took over. Sounds a little sneaky, but the information's right there in the public record. We'll have all the details about this maneuver tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Talk about a not-quite-meet-cute. Roy Lane opens with a man weeping in a lavatory, a unisex lavatory in an art gallery over a breakup. A woman takes the cubicle next door. She hears him sobbing and a little more. Excuse me. Do you want to have a private moment? My bad. It's not that private, though. The two, Yas and Dom, later meet face-to-face and wind up spending the day walking, talking together, going off by themselves and running into one another all over again in the Rye Lane Market neighborhood. Rye Lane is a debut rom-com directed by Rain Allen Miller. Dom is played by David Johnson. Yes, by Vivian Opara. Those two stars join us now. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you for having having us. (laughs) Quite an eventful day they have, isn't it? You could definitely say that. Let let me turn to you, please, if I could first, uh, Vivian Opara. Yes, is nursing her own hurts, isn't she? She definitely is. Um, she has a curiosity for the world, which is boundless, but no curiosity for like herself or any self-discovery. And I think you learn why and sort of unearth that insecurity within her in the film, which is really interesting. So I feel like in a lot of rom-coms, the female character is just there to aid the dude's self-discovery. But here they, there's kind of a symbiosis. They mutually help each other. Hmm. And Mr. Johnson, what do you think drives Dom, may I say, with respect, a buttoned-up accountant, to throw his life open to a stranger so much? I mean, yeah, I guess you could say a buttoned-up accountant. I'd say he's he's like a football man. He loves football, he loves his missus, and life is kind of mapped out for him in a way. Uh, And it's, uh, it's broken, obviously, quite early in the film. And I guess, you know, it's that sense of needing the new and wanting to meet someone who can um, give you something that you're missing. Let me ask you both as actors, how do you make the timing work in a film like this? Do you know what? I think that is credit to an incredible director, Rain Alan Miller. Like, she gave us and allowed us so much freedom. She's super generous. And I think that means, but she's so specific in the world that she's creating. So as an actor, you kind of immediately know where you're situated, but then that means you can kind of play endlessly because you know where you are. So 
um yeah we were just able to play and riff and use the script as like a springboard to bring the characters alive but also bring our own world that we'd created for each character to it you know we did we we had so much free reign from rain pardon the pun but we we did you know she gave us so much to run with and also by the way you know films are made in edits in a way sometimes we you know me and vivian did takes that you don't want to see they were absolutely crazy and mental <laughs> i'd like to see those more than the other than the what made it actually <laughs> they'll probably make a cut somewhere yeah <laughs> all right someday perhaps uh, I want to ask you about another one of your co-stars, and that's Rye Lane uh, itself, this uh, the street in Peckham. Also a kind of co-star, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, we, we, we always love to say that it's our third lead character. It's kind of an actor's dream in that scenario because you're just getting like a, you know, a real playground. The markets, the yoga, the Tai Chi groups, the ethnic food stands, it really reminds you that, that London is the world, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like that. You kind of can get, it's like a one-stop shop for anywhere you need to go. Like, and Peckham is very much yeah. like that. You turn a corner, you're with like the Nigerian aunties, you turn a corner, with you're, you're with the hood men, you'll turn a corner, you're with like, yeah, the yummy mummies. So, um, yeah, so it's a full-bodied experience and I'm glad that we got to capture it in the film for sure. There's a scene where a disreputable looking man makes a taco for the two of you. And I said to myself, Geez, that guy looks like Colin Firth. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? So can Colin Firth make a taco or is that is that all show business? Do you know what? He he actually, you know, he really milked that taco. You know, like he was he was talking to Rain about like, should I put the beans on first or the sour cream? Like what what do you think it's gonna be? Like <laughs> Yeah, he was so much fun. Method actors, method actors. Um at this moment of your career. Hope you won't mind telling us the story behind this one line in Wikipedia. Quote, after getting in trouble at school, Johnson admitted to his mother that he wanted to be an actor. So what was tougher, telling your mother you were in trouble at school or telling her you wanted to be an actor? <laughs> Do you know what? That is a good question. It had to be telling her that I got in trouble at school. She was quite, kind of quite blasé about me being an actor if I'm honest. She was like, well, stop wasting time, like, go and do it. Go sing, dance, and and make make merry, you know what I mean? But when I told her I was in trouble for fighting a lot, she, that was the problem, because uh, that could have been quite bad. You wound up at RADA, didn't you? Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Yeah, I did. Um, by the way, it's, you know, it's not as grand as people like to make out. It's kind of just, a, you know, a place that you go to... I don't know, understand more about yourself, or at least I did. Well, certainly there's a distinguished lineage coming out of Rada, of which you have joined now. And um, maybe, you know, Pearl, let me ask you, your character Yaz is in the film business too, or trying to be in the film business in costume design, and has to contend with a lot of no's. That's just a fact of life in show business, isn't it? Particularly when you're starting out. Yeah, I think... Um... Rejection is so deeply embedded into what we do. I think it's impacted my worldview. I'm so blasé if things don't go my way. I'm just like, mmm, there'll be another opportunity on things that I should definitely care more about. But I think, um, I think it's good and it's bad. Like, I think life is super light. And so just being able to be like, you know, this thing happened and it happened mm -hmm. is, um, yeah, 
a a good thing. So you've made this rom-com, which is getting was a big hit at Sundance and getting acclaimed around the world. Have you learned something about love, romance? You know, um, as much as I'm really trying, like deep down in my bowels, not to get like existential about this question. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, yeah, I did. Uh, just that, you know, yeah, you can't predict it. Just like we kind of can't predict this film. To be very clear, this is, you know, uh, you know, when I took this film on, I just thought this was a challenge for me as an actor to kind of do something different, and then. You know, you're expecting it to sit at the backlog of Amazon somewhere and never be seen in this vault, you know what I mean, of, like, <laughs> risks. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're at Sundance and we're kind of getting just so much amazing stuff. And I think that's kind of, like, the, the existential point of love. You can't predict it. You just kind of got to go with it and trust it. And, um, yeah, that. I agree. And um, also... If you can find love in your everyday, like it will attract the love that you want. Vivian Opara and David Johnson, they are the stars along with South London of Rye Lane now on Hulu. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 840. And coming up in a few minutes, you'll get the story on some residents in upstate New York reacting to the news of the indictment of Donald Trump. WBUR supporters include BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The Jewish Arts Collaborative. Jewish culture is more than matzo balls, and J-Arts is here to explore with you. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. And the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Guides on buying and selling real estate in greater Boston, available at mraboston.com slash WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And when you give right now, your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio, it's WBUR's Candace Springer. And together, we are urging you to go ahead and make that monthly contribution. We are asking you to do this because most of the funding that keeps our programming on the air and thriving here at WBUR comes from you. We are listener supported. And this match that we have in effect means that when you make a generous monthly contribution of, say, $10 a month, if that's right for you, that $10 becomes $20 a month. If you contribute $30 a month, it's $60 a month for WBUR. So go ahead and go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And in addition to supporting the journalism of our local 
local reporters here at WBUR. NPR has hundreds of journalists working on your behalf throughout the country and around the world, and they're your ears and your eyes to where important news happens. They bring you the nuance and the context that help you understand the world better. And we're asking you to support their work as well so that we can continue to bring it to you. You can do that at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we've got that monthly dollar for dollar match. So now is the time to maximize your gift. You know, one of our icons at NPR, Sylvia Pajoli, is hanging up her headphones after serving for 41 years on NPR's international desk. Sylvia and our CEO, Margaret Lowe, actually worked together at NPR. And Margaret shared her reflections with Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy. Sylvia has been on NPR's air for 41 years. She's NPR's longest-serving foreign correspondent. Her name is practically synonymous with Rome, and she's covered three popes. She's also taken us around the world to Prague's Velvet Revolution, the Balkans, Myanmar, Iraq. I have such vivid memories of the days 40 years ago editing her pieces in the middle of the night on Morning Edition when I was an overnight production assistant. And it was through her reporting that I really began to understand the world and the full power of journalism. And I can't tell you how many times and how many people have asked me if I know Sylvia Pajoli. And when they ask, they always try to say her name just like she does, which is close to impossible. I actually brought a quick clip of Sylvia sucking out from Rome in one of her latest stories. Here it is. Sylvia Pajoli, NPR News, Rome. Sylvia Pajoli, NPR News, Rome. I definitely can't say it like she does, but I've always been so proud to say that I do indeed know Sylvia, who, by the way, grew up here. Sylvia represents the very best of what NPR and WBUR stand for, and, and she always will. So if having someone like Sylvia Pajoli in your life for the past 5, 10, 15, or 40 years has mattered to you, please support WBUR and NPR with your donation. Sylvia Pajoli actually uh, was from Cambridge, so reporting internationally, but one of our local journalists as well. And if you learned a lot about the world from Sylvia's reporting, you've got a, to you've got a reason to support WBUR. And now that we're doing this dollar for dollar match, your gift actually means more impact for WBUR. So if you give ten dollars, that's twenty dollars a month. That fifteen dollars is thirty. A hundred is two hundred. So think about how much WBUR means to you and. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Right. I mean, this is a perfect time to take advantage of this opportunity to double the impact of your already generous contribution. But it is your generous contribution that uh, is so important. Uh, Voluntary listener support is really the bulk of where our funding comes from. And, you know, when you uh, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and you make that tax-deductible monthly contribution, you are supporting our local journalism uh, in addition to all the journalism from around the country and all the world. And at WBUR, we strongly believe that it's important for all the voices in our community to be heard. Um, And so when you support WBUR, you raise all of our voices and you'll be supporting our local WBUR journalists. Here's one example. My name is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter at WBUR. Apparently, around the 19th century and going forward into the 20th century, this new sort of deed restriction started to appear. Somebody would sell a piece of land 
and include in the deed a restriction that only certain people could live there. One of the racist deed restrictions that we uncovered was in Wilmington. The deed prohibited anybody from Ireland from inhabiting this plot of land. So I was able to find the house and found the couple. They were home and Mary Tazone Kaiser was blown away. It's disgusting. I mean, to like discriminate against anybody so they can't own land for whatever reason or live in a, live in a house for whatever reason. This kind of reporting matters to our listeners. It matters to our station. Go to WBUR.org and sign up to become a monthly contributor. WBUR will always be free and open to everyone, but it, it takes investment. It takes investment from people who care about it to allow us to thrive. Our strength is listener support. Our editorial independence is listener support. So when you give 10, 20, or $30 a month to WBUR, you're standing up for free and independent journalism and storytelling. And if you give it right now, you're actually going to double that gift. 10 becomes 20, 20 becomes 40, 30 becomes 60. You're saying WBUR matters and your community to you and your community, and you're going to ensure that we continue to thrive. That's right. So 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Those are your avenues to make that monthly contribution. And right now, thanks to some members of WBUR's Murrow Society who gave their money to WBUR to match your monthly contribution dollar for dollar, the impact of your gift is doubled. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. People across the country are reacting to the indictment of former President Donald Trump. He is still hugely popular in many parts of the country, including upstate New York. Mr. Trump won most rural counties there in both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell has this report. On Thursday evening, Corey Bova-Wamsgans got a pretty eager text from his aunt. It was one of the first things she sent out to everybody. She's like, oh, are you looking at the news? You see the news? You see what's happening? And I'm like, oh, shit. What's going on? What's going on was that former President Donald Trump had been indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney. Bova Wamsgans lives in Saranac Lake. It's a small mountain town about five hours north of the city. He says his aunt was gloating. She doesn't like Trump. But Bova Wamsgans does. Still, he wasn't surprised by the indictment. I knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. <laughs> These people aren't going to stop. They're not going to stop. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. By these people, he means Democrats. Bova Wamsgans believes it's all part of a hidden agenda, one aimed at creating a new world order. There's no evidence to support that conspiracy theory. The evidence against Trump in this trial will likely focus on his business records and a payment made to porn star Stormy Daniels. 
David Thomas Train from nearby Keene Valley thinks Trump had it coming. What's clear is he's been playing fast and loose with the law his whole life. And is this a surprise? No. I think it's probably long overdue. A recent poll from NPR, PBS NewsHour, and Marist found that before the indictment, 46% of folks thought Trump had done something illegal. The divide is a lot starker between parties. Nine in 10 Democrats said the investigations into Trump are fair, while eight in 10 Republicans called them a witch hunt. These divisions, the Democrats and the Republicans, I think it's gone way too far. Way, way, way too far. That's Christine Prosser. She's from down the road in Keene. Prosser is a registered independent, so she thinks the indictment could further divide the country. But Prosser says if the evidence leads to a conviction, maybe that could change the minds of some Trump voters. Sooner or later, you're going to have to actually look at it and say, well, maybe he isn't a good guy. It's not clear, though, how likely that shift could be. The message from some top Republican lawmakers is outrage and denial. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who represents this part of upstate New York, said on Twitter on Friday, quote, there is no crime. There is no case. This is a witch hunt. Trump doesn't deny the payment to Stormy Daniels, though he does deny the affair. I asked Trump supporter Corey Bova-Wamsgans about this, about how he'd react if Trump is found guilty. So what? So what? Look at Clinton. He had relations in the Oval Office. This indictment is the first for a former president, but it might not be the last for Trump. He could face charges in Georgia over election interference and one or two more indictments from federal prosecutors. For NPR News, I'm Emily Russell in Saranac Lake, New York. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in a few minutes, you'll get a conversation with a former Arkansas governor, a Republican, who has called for Donald Trump to step aside from the 2024 presidential campaign now that Trump has been indicted. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington now through April 23rd, HuntingtonTheater.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out, cambridgeculinary.com. And Volante Farms, with their greenhouse opening April 1st, homegrown pansies, spring bulbs, and gardening workshops every Saturday. Hours and info at volantefarms.com. Boston is fortunate to have options when it comes to news sources, but local journalism is in decline. I'm Ari Shapiro. WBUR is doing everything it can to bring you meaningful, nuanced stories from greater Boston. But WBUR can't do its job without your financial support. We need every listener who can give to give a little money every month. Become a member at WBUR.org. And you can also call 1-800-909-9287. Listener support is what keeps WBUR coming to you. And that's why you can count on WBURs because you and your neighbors and members of the community have made their contribution. So if you have not yet made your monthly contribution, now's the perfect time because at the moment we have a dollar for dollar match in effect. That means if you give $10 a month to support WBUR, 
your uh, contribution becomes $20. If you give $50 a month, your contribution becomes $100 a month. Uh, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. The loss of local journalism in our communities affects us all. Local journalism has an essential role to play in our lives and our democracy. And at WBUR, we're doing everything we can to keep local journalism, journalism strong with deep and nuanced local reporting. And we're only limited by the number of funding that we have to do this important work. So that's why we're asking you to give whatever you can give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And as Sharon mentioned, right now some of our generous Murrow Society members have stepped up to match your contributions dollar for dollar. So this is the time to maximize the impact of your gift. And here's an example of our local reporting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter at WBUR. Massachusetts has one of the only state-run family shelter systems, and many thousands of local families turn to it at their hardest moment. And sometimes it works well, but sometimes it really doesn't. Almost every night there are parents and kids in emergency rooms, like at Boston Children's Hospital, simply because they cannot get into a shelter. It's massive. We have had to dedicate close to 40% of our social work resources to this problem. I spent months convincing hospitals to share their perspective. I talked to families and state officials about their experience. And with this messy and complicated system, I try to distill what's important, what's new, what the implications are, and what matters to families who use the system and to taxpayers who pay hundreds of millions of dollars each year to make our state's family shelter system possible. I will continue to cover this because there are problems and because there are big changes on the horizon. Help Gabriella continue to cover this story because it affects all of our lives here in Massachusetts. We can't do this important work without your financial support. So maybe consider starting a monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's right. Listener support is the very foundation of our independent journalism. Um, and listener support is the largest share of our funding here at WBUR. So when you go to WBUR.org or you call 1-800-909-9287 and you generously give WBUR $10 a month or $20 a month or $30 a month, whatever's right for you, what you're doing is giving us the ability and the freedom to report, to do this independent journalism that you count on. And so that's why we're asking you to give at WBUR.org or to call 1-800-909-9287 to give. And, and right now, your support is matched dollar for dollar. So it is an incredibly effective way to double the impact of your already generous gift. When you give $20 a month, that becomes $40 a month. And we pour that money right back into weekend edition and the rest of the programs that we bring you. So it serves you and it serves the entire community. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. 
And this is not, you know, the same story or the same ask for your support. Our business support is still not back from where it was before the pandemic. And at the same time, journalism, especially local journalism, has been gutted in many local communities. Now more than ever, people uh, are turning to public radio, WBUR, specifically for vital news reporting. We need your support and the support of every listener who can give something to help sustain this service. And if you give now, your contributions will be matched dollar for dollar. Give it double WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. becomes 20. 20 becomes 40. 30 becomes 60. This is the time to maximize your contribution to WBUR. We are here for you. We want to make sure we can still be here for you. And the way to make that happen is to get in on this match because it's just such an effective way for you to, you know, maximize your, uh, you know, the potential of your generosity. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and make your monthly contribution. It's tax deductible. The entire process will take you maybe two minutes max. And uh, it's it's easy, it's simple. And then you can go about your day knowing that you've done what you really need to do to support the journalism that you count on. executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. First responders in Arkansas are expected to be busy this weekend searching for possible victims following yesterday's fierce storm that spun off a suspected tornado that hit the Little Rock area, causing widespread damage. Josie Lenora is a reporter with member station KUAR in Little Rock. The tornado touched down about 2.30 in the afternoon in the northwest part of Little Rock. Ariel Gutierrez was in the shower when it hit. I just got out. I didn't know what to do. I heard a loud bang. I was like, what do I do? I didn't know where to run. Down the road, Michael Robbins was working at a nursing home and helped evacuate his residents, then several people at a nearby apartment complex. That's bad. It's bad. It's leveled. Yeah, I mean, I, you could even see a lot of stuff. All the power lines, trees are down. It's, it's pretty bad. Hopefully everybody's all right. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has declared a state of emergency and activated the state's National Guard to assist with search and rescue. 
For NPR News, I'm Josie Lenora in Little Rock. Those destructive storms killed at least three people in Arkansas and three more in Indiana, where officials in Sullivan County say some residents are unaccounted for. In Illinois, the roof of a theater collapsed during a concert. Authorities say one person was killed and 28 injured. Pope Francis was greeted by applause as he left a hospital in Rome today. As he left the hospital, Francis told reporters that he's still alive and said he will deliver the Angelus prayer tomorrow on Palm Sunday from St. Peter's Square. He was discharged from the hospital after being treated for bronchitis over the past few days. NPR Sylvia Pajoli is in Rome and has more on the Pope's hospital stay. The Pope had visited the hospital's children cancer ward, bringing several presents, rosaries, chocolate eggs, and copies of a book about Jesus. He also baptized a baby named Miguel Angel, who's only a few weeks old. The Pope has an intense Easter week ahead, culminating with a late-night Good Friday procession and a long papal speech delivered on Easter from the central balcony of St. Peter's Basilica. Sylvia Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. The NBA has come to terms with players on a new collective bargaining agreement. The talks stretch beyond a midnight deadline, as Greg Eklund reports. The new collective bargaining agreement between the NBA and the union representing players will last seven years, though there's a mutual opt-out after the 2028-2029 season. Both sides had the option of pulling out of the current CBA after this season. According to ESPN, the New Deal calls for finally implementing an in-season tournament, something that's been talked about for several years. It also sets a minimum of 65 games to be played to be eligible for major individual awards. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A major anti-hunger group is warning that people who have trouble buying food are starting to feel the impact of a reduction in federal funding. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports on the attempt to make up for the loss in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The state is kicking in extra money, and SNAP recipients should start getting that help on April 7th. But the Greater Boston Food Bank's Catherine Lynn says that will only cover 40%. She says more people turning to them for help will cause more strain on their operation. At a time when they're already seeing uh, a huge demand and the, the demand has been consistent and persistent, the demand on our system is anticipated to continue at um, elevated rates. Lynn says there has been over a 60% increase in people looking for help at food banks since the beginning of the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will be on hand today when the city offers free legal help to people applying for citizenship. The Mayor's Office of Immigrant Advancement and the nonprofit project Citizenship are holding the event at the Reggie Lewis Center in Roxbury, where attorneys and law students will be helping applicants at no cost. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is introducing a measure to help trans and non-binary people with their credit. The Boston Democrat wants to prevent credit reporting agencies from including a person's former name on a credit report after they've legally changed their name. Presley says the move will improve the accuracy of the reports that are used to build credit and secure housing. 
Plans are underway in Boston for more projects to pay tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. In January, the Embrace sculpture on Boston Common was dedicated to the couple. The Boston Globe reports another memorial to honor the couple's roots in Boston will be built in Roxbury. Organizers of the Embrace are building an Embrace Center in Roxbury and a heritage trail featuring sites that defined the King's time in Boston. It is 43 degrees in Boston with a dense fog advisory in effect for another hour. And today, along with the fog, you'll have some rain throughout the day and highs in the low 60s. WBUR supporters include PBS with The Sun Queen. American Experience presents the story of scientist Maria Telkesh, who dedicated her career to harnessing the power of the sun. Premiering Tuesday at 9, 8 central on PBS. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for joining us today. Many prominent Republicans have rallied to denounce the indictment of former President Donald Trump in New York City. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise calls it outrageous. Speaker Kevin McCarthy tweeted, The American people will not tolerate this injustice. Asia Hutchinson sounds a different note, the former House member and former governor of Arkansas, who's openly considering a run for president, joins us now from Bentonville, Arkansas. Mr. Hutchinson, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, good to be with you today. Ed, let us first say how sorry we heard about, uh, about the horrible tornadoes that hit your state yesterday. Well, thank you. They uh, uh, are recovering uh, it was a, a tragedy. They were hard hit in Little Rock, but uh, thank you for uh, expressing that. You've said Donald Trump should step aside from the presidential race. Isn't he entitled to his day in court? He absolutely is, and he's uh, entitled to the presumption of innocence. And so whenever I said some time ago that uh, if he's indicted, he should step aside, it's a standard that I have followed uh, for public officials in Arkansas uh, all during the time that I was governor. And the reason is that uh, the position that you seek in our country, particularly the presidency, is more important than any individual. And so that's the reason I said that as a matter of principle. Uh, but at, <clears throat> at the same time, he's entitled to his presumption of innocence. And uh, the charges that uh, were brought are not charges that I would have brought as a former federal prosecutor, but uh, the system will work, and uh, we've got to give it time to do that. Why wouldn't have you brought the charges? You are a, for a former prosecutor, as you know. Well, prosecutor has uh, discretion, and uh, in this case, and I'm saying that based upon the facts that I know, uh, you have uh, something that's never been done before. You've had two uh, prosecutors that have declined it thus far. And so it looks like it's very thin. And when you're going after the uh, former president of the United States of America, you better have a rock solid case. Now we need to be a little patient on the facts because uh, he hasn't, uh, the district attorney, Bragg, mm -hmm. has not released uh, the indictment yet. So we don't know the details. But based on what I know, it doesn't look like a case that uh, I would have brought or should be brought against uh, the former president. But you say based on what you know, there is more to there is more to be known, right? Well, that's exactly right. And that's why everybody needs to take a deep breath. And while this is unprecedented, it's not a, a great day for America. It's a sad day. Uh, let's let the system work. Let's find out what the facts are exactly. 
and uh, you know he's going to have his day in court. Uh, that's how it works. It works for thousands of Americans every day, and this is unprecedented because it's a former president. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, let's let's let the system work. Well, when you say let me get back to this, when you say let's let the system work, are you then why not let uh, President Trump uh, run for president even as he's being prosecuted? It couldn't be more than New York State, obviously. There are several municipalities that are looking at it. Why uh, Why not give him the presumption of innocence and let him run for president? Well, he is, and uh, he has that right to do it, and he's not going to but, change but it. But you've asked him to step aside, will not again. I, I said that he should, and this was a couple of months ago, said that he should step aside if he's indicted. Yeah. Yes, I believe he should. That's a decision I believe is a proper one. He's not going to make it. There's nobody, nobody can require him to step aside, and so he's not going to do it. I've just stated my position on it. Asa Hutchinson is the former governor of Arkansas. Uh, thank you so much for being with us this morning, sir, and, and good luck to the people in Arkansas. Uh, thank you very much, Scott. There seems to be an app for everything these days, even seeking asylum. The Biden administration launched the CBP-1 app in January when the government announced a new policy that requires migrants to book an asylum interview before they enter the United States. Apps can have glitches. CBP-1 has a lot. And in this case, of course, people's lives and security are at stake. Felicia Rangel Sampanaro is the director of the Sidewalk School, an organization that helps migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border with shelter, schooling, and uh, and now tech support. She joins us from Reynosa, Mexico. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. What are some of the problems with the app that you experienced? So when the app first launched, one of the main issues was people who have a dark skin tone their pictures were not being accepted into the CBP-1 app. Also, it was separating families. You're also getting constant error messages, and that's for a variety of reasons, which I can tell you about. Uh, So (laughs) you have seven encampments, three in Matamoros, four in Reynosa. People are living outside in makeshift tents, in dirt, and in trash with their entire family. So every day at 10 a.m. Central Time, you will see thousands of people at the same time on their phone trying to get an appointment with CBP-1. Wi-Fi in both cities are spotty at Mm -hmm. best. Thousands of people at the same time are standing on hills, bridges, the highest point they can get to, trying to catch a signal to get an appointment on CBP-1. So all of these error messages that people are receiving, oftentimes we hear it's because too many people were on the app at the same time. So let me get this straight. The government says you've got to use this app, and then the technology, the surroundings, the environment, the lack of Wi-Fi, the fact that you need a cell phone to begin with makes it difficult, if not impossible, to use the app. Right. The U.S. government will not provide internet service. And yes, some people do not have a phone. So then what you see when people go to these border towns and you see an entire family selling gum or candy, they're actually saving money to buy a phone. 
That's what they're doing. And of course, I mean, let's remind ourselves, the whole idea of offering asylum is so that people who are fleeing persecution will have an option to save their lives. And so now they also need a cell phone and Wi-Fi and plenty of time. Yes. Why you vie for the same thing with everyone surrounding you. There is a difference in how this works out for people. Black asylum seekers, they stay inside these encampments three to six months. And when this app first came out, no Black person was crossing. That was our main complaint. If you are a brown skin tone, you're probably in Mexico for two or three months, which is still a long time to live inside of an encampment in a mm-hmm. makeshift tent with your family in trash. And if you're a white asylum seeker, you're there for two weeks to one month because you probably have the resources to get a hotel room. So you can stay on your phone all day constantly. So it's very different depending on your skin tone and the resources you have. I, I say this as a reporter with a little bit of experience reporting in this realm. It sounds like somebody has come up with the app so they can tell members of Congress, look what we're doing. And except the app doesn't work to anybody's satisfaction. So, but that's not the point. You have to keep in mind before the app, they let third parties do this same process. Some of these third parties were charging between $1,000 to $7,000 for a free process. American lawyers, uh, some foundations that I will not name, they were becoming millionaires out here in Matamoros and Reynosa off of these asylum seekers who are living in dirt with their babies. And I've heard this before in meetings with the U.S. government. This was their solution to that problem. And what is life like there in Reynoso with so many people waiting for some kind of word? People are clearly suffering in Reynoso because there are four encampments and all the shelters stay full at all times. But people die. Last week we had two babies die and a, a little girl who had cancer died out there. Because on the app, there isn't anything you can click that says, like, I'm dying or my child is dying. Oh, my gosh. Well, instead, we ask the parent to leave the sick baby and go up on a hill and try to catch the Wi-Fi and catch that appointment with everyone around you as your baby's back in your tent dying. This is not a rarity. This happens every week. Is the app getting any better? The last update was March 6th for the CBP-1 app. And that is when we really started seeing Black asylum seekers crossing, families crossing. So sure, it's getting better, but the bar was set so low. But we're still asking thousands of people to buy your own uh, internet service, to buy your own expensive phone, We're asking people who are running for their lives to jump through hoops to get an appointment, go through all of these different things, and maybe you and your family will cross. Maybe. We'll see. Felicia Rangel Semponaro is uh, director of the Sidewalk School in Reynosa, Mexico. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.
And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in a few minutes, the $7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles is changing again. New requirements about battery sourcing are taking effect, and you'll hear that some vehicles almost certainly will stop qualifying for the credit. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative. Jewish culture is more than matzo balls, and J-Arts is here to explore with you. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And JBS Home Inspections, committed to providing impartial recommendations on home improvements and repairs. JBSinspections.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And here's a reason to give right now, just as Daryl C. Murphy so kindly asked you to do. We've got a dollar-for-dollar match in effect, and that means your generous contribution of, say, $10 a month becomes $20 a month, just like that. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. Candace Springer is with me in the studio and together we are reminding you how crucial it is for you to go ahead and make that call or go online now to make that contribution before the day gets away from you. It's, you know, almost 920 in the morning and before you know it, the day will have evaporated and you probably have this on your to-do list. It might not have happened. So do it now while this match is in effect, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. You know, WBUR will always be a free public good that's available to anyone and everyone, but we are increasingly relying on financial support from our listeners. So when you give especially when you give monthly, you provide a more secure future for WBUR and you create a more informed community in Boston and beyond. And, you know, you could give as little as $12 a month. And if you do, we actually have a really cool special gift. You could get a $50 gift card to Weston Nurseries as our thanks for that contribution. You know, spring has sprung and maybe, you know, you got to get that garden together. You could use it on amazing plants. You could use it to get your garden to grow. Uh, might be raining today, but you know that sun is going to come out soon. So think about supporting WBUR. Think about a nice thank you gift that you could get for your support. And our Murrow Society members are matching your gift dollar for dollar. So that 12 becomes 24. Here's an example of why people support WBUR. Listening to WBUR really gives me a precise understanding of what's going on in a very short amount of time. I get a little smarter every time I listen, and I learn all types of different information. It's the sort of programming that helps me understand myself and helps me understand the world around me better. I want to be able to participate in conversations and really contribute to what's going on around me and in the world, and and just to be conscious about what's happening in my life. It's just an opportunity to learn about so many different subjects, learn about different places in the world that I never would otherwise have been exposed to. For all the ways WBUR enriches your life, give monthly at WBUR.org. 
So at its core, WBUR is a news organization, but we're also a source of comfort, connection, and community, as you heard from our listeners. We find and tell stories about people finding joy in their life during what is a very fatiguing time to be alive. And they tell us these stories are as important as the day's biggest news. They capture so much of what we're all yearning for, and we're asking you to help us bring you more of them. Give $10, 20 or $30 a month. We'll match that dollar for dollar because of some generous support from our Murrow Society members, and we hope that this ask is small because the biggest impact of your gift uh, is that we get to continue doing what we love to do so much and providing you the news and coverage that you love. That's right. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBU org, And, you know, whether it's big news breaking or any time that you're setting out to learn more about the complexities of our world, uh, there's some pretty important concepts to think about as you choose your news sources. You know, you want to think about, um, you know, accuracy, context, nuance, depth, independence, range, proportion. All these things matter, and they are all things uh, to which we are dedicated here at WBUR. We want you to be able to count on us all the time, and right now we're counting on you since listener support is the largest share of our funding. It's what keeps WBUR independent uh, and take advantage of this match that is in effect right now which means that every dollar you contribute is matched dollar for dollar. So your monthly contribution of $20 uh, becomes a $40 monthly contribution. Your your monthly contribution of $50 becomes a $100 contribution. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to double the impact of your generosity. Uh, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And, you know, here's another example of our local journalism. Hi, I'm WBUR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser. So Sam Woodman is a young climate activist and she told the story of what happened during the big nor'easter of 2018 when the street she lived on in Revere just flooded really severely. You can see the ocean from Pearl Avenue, so it's really pretty. It's kind of like this quintessential small town street, even though it's in the middle of Revere. And I remember Sam pointing to this one spot that was maybe 15 feet away from her house. And she said, this is where the water comes up to. This is where we all know that if there's a storm coming, we do not park our cars below this point. So when the nor'easter hit, nobody parked there. Everybody parked much farther up the street, but the waters came up in a way that they had never seen before. And that's how they all got in trouble. There was a a neighbor across the street who had been there for decades, and she told me a story about what happened during the storm, that the water came up into their backyard. They're used to the backyard flooding, right? But when the big storm came, the water just came pouring into their basement. We evacuated. We actually evacuated. The water was up to my husband in the middle of his chest in the basement. But I was just really touched by how tight-knit this community was and how attached everyone was to this specific street. This is a working-class neighborhood and climate change is going to disproportionately affect those who can least afford to protect themselves. And this story tells us that. We hear so much about climate change and sea level rise in Massachusetts and here's a story of where it's, it's impacting 
people. These are the stories that we need to hear and these are the stories that we need to tell so that we can really think about how we're going to tackle this. You rely on WBUR for thoughtful coverage and conversations featuring, you know, top-notch journalists like our own Miriam Wasser. Uh, you can get this on the radio, online, via the app, in BUR podcasts, in BUR newsletters, um, on events, in events at City Space. This is all part of the WBUR package, and it is all made possible by you. We are asking you for your contribution because most of the funding we get comes from you. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Yes, climate change can feel so enormous. So that's why your support means we can keep looking up and out on climate change and other essential issues that need to go beyond a headline to understand. And reminder, our Murrow Society members, some of them have stepped up to match your contributions dollar for dollar. So you want to go to WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287 to maximize the impact of your gift today. Yeah, just take a moment, think about how much WBUR means to you and understand that we are counting on you, uh, uh, not unlike how you are counting on us. We are listener supported. So take advantage of that dollar for dollar match, your monthly contribution that already is so generous that whatever amount feels right for you, that's going to be doubled as long as you take part in this now. And you do that by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by going to WBUR.org. If you've already major contribution. Thank you so much. If you haven't yet, please do it now. 1-800-909-9287. You can also take advantage of the dollar for dollar match by going to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com NPR and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. If you've been considering an electric car, you want to pay attention to what the Treasury Department is doing. It unveiled new guidance on Friday about electric vehicle batteries, and as a result, some vehicles are likely to lose their federal tax credit. NPR's Camila Domanowski joins us. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Basically, what happened this week? Well, basically, if you take these EV tax credits, they're worth up to $7,500 per qualifying vehicle. And starting on April 18th, what it means to be a qualifying vehicle will change. You have to meet all the existing requirements and a lot of the stuff that goes into that vehicle's battery has to come from the U.S. or North America or a trade partner. This is a requirement that is supposed to bring jobs to the United States and reduce reliance on China for the supply chain. I'm not sure I understand how the Treasury Department figures into this. 
Yeah, it's kind of curious. This is a law that was passed by Congress last year, but it is a tax credit. So the IRS is involved in figuring out how it actually works. And it is complicated. I'm actually going to use a metaphor here, if you'll humor me. If you had a bag of dried rice and I asked you, did 50% of that rice come from the United States or not? Like, you might be confused by why I was asking that question, but you could figure out how to answer it, right? What if you had a burrito and I asked you, Scott Simon, is half of that burrito from the United States? You would have a lot of follow-up questions about like how you consider where the beans were grown right. versus yeah. where they were boiled. And then you have the salsa that has a lot of different ingredients. Every ingredient has its own pathway. So even figuring out how you do the math is hard. And so what the Treasury Department just dropped is basically 60 pages of instructions on how to calculate where a burrito is from. And now companies need to actually apply that and break down their burritos. And the burritos in this extended analogy are the batteries. For the record, I would pat my stomach and say, the burrito is here now, but let's continue with this extended metaphor. After all the analysis, how many cars will still get the tax credit? The Treasury Department says that it doesn't know. I asked John Bazella, he's the head of the trade group for auto manufacturers. He's the guy who would know, and he said... So the short answer is, we're not entirely sure. Now, since I spoke to him, we've gotten some information. GM says the Bolt will get some credit. Tesla says the Model 3 will see its credit reduced. Looks like we're going to be hearing company by company on this. We should know the full list on April 18th, exactly when this goes into effect. So quick note here, if you're buying a used EV or you're leasing an EV, you don't have to worry about this at all. But if you are in the market for a new EV and you know you would qualify for the credit today, you might not in a few weeks. So maybe don't gobble. Camila, why is this happening now? These EV tax credits have been changed to try to do two things at once. Sell more electric vehicles for the fight against climate change, but also get more mines and processing plants and battery factories built in the United States for jobs and to reduce dependency on China, like I said earlier. And those two goals are in direct tension. The easier you make it to qualify, the more cars you sell, the harder you make it, the more you boost to the supply chain. And so these battery sourcing rules are right at the heart of this tension, right? They're designed to build up the supply chain, but the Treasury Department has added some flexibility because they want to also sell EVs. It's a tug of war, and this is not the end. There's going to be more debates over these tax credits in the months and the years ahead. NPR's Camila Domanowski, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It was a champagne pop that resounded through corporate America. To the first union in American history. That was Chris Smalls, founder of the Amazon Labor Union, toasting the first Amazon Union in the U.S. a year ago today. It was a stunning victory. But a year later, the fight drags on for his union and for many others, as NPR's Andrea Hsu reports. Remember what it was like last spring? The labor movement had so much hope. Please welcome Chris Smalls. Chris Smalls, the fired Amazon warehouse worker turned labor warrior, had become a hero, a staple of late night television. Miro, who is in the bodega with us today? Oh, man, it's the god himself. Mm -hmm. It's my man Chris Smalls, Chris Jersey's Smalls. own. With his signature gold chains and dark shades, he appeared on panel after panel. Chris, you are giving us hope and inspiration um, because... Because he had achieved the impossible. He'd gone to war with Goliath and won. 
The union victory at Amazon had people talking about a labor resurgence, not just at Amazon, but among working people everywhere. A turnaround for unions after a decades-long decline. Chris Smalls himself warned Amazon that more organizing was coming. Here he was on Showtime. It's been crazy. Ever since we won, uh, we've been contacted by every building in the country already and overseas as well. I'm checking my DMs every day, messages, emails. I can't even keep up anymore. But just a month after its April 1st victory, the Amazon labor union lost its next election at a warehouse across the street by a fairly wide margin. We've just got some breaking news out of New York where Amazon workers have voted not to unionize a second Staten Island warehouse. And last fall, Amazon workers voted down the union at another warehouse in Albany. Now, Amazon had spent millions on anti-union consultants. The company had also raised wages, made some changes workers had been asking for, and outright said to them, you're better off without a union. Why pay their dues? That message seems to have gotten through. And now there are reports of rifts within the Amazon labor union, disagreements about how to move forward, how to carry on the fight, because it remains a fight even at the warehouse that did unionize. Amazon has still to accept the result of that election, much less to bargain a contract. Ruth Milkman is a labor sociologist with the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. And that's true of all these companies. They all are remain intransigent in their anti-union activities, and the law enables them to do that. Labor law, she says, is tilted in favor of employers. For one thing, employers can find endless ways to stall the process. That's what Amazon appears to be doing on Staten Island. Federal labor officials have considered and rejected Amazon's numerous objections to the election. Now they've ordered the company to start negotiating a contract. But Amazon has asked for a review. And even if that review doesn't go in its favor, Amazon can appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. They can create long delays at every stage of the organizing process, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Also, there are no civil penalties for violating a worker's right to organize. So even though labor officials have found some of Amazon's anti-union activities to be unlawful, the company has gotten little more than a slap on the wrist. Here's how Liz Schuler, the president of the AFL-CIO, sees it. Right now, companies are just, it's a cost of doing business. Democrats, including President Biden, have been pushing for a bill that would change that. Under the PRO Act, companies would be fined up to $50,000 for each violation of labor law, double that for repeat offenders. But with Congress divided the way it is, the PRO Act is going nowhere. And without a radical change to the law, Ruth Milkman says a labor resurgence is unlikely. Those of us who've been watching this stuff for many decades have actually been pleasantly surprised by the success that has occurred, but it's too modest in scope and too fiercely resisted by employers. To really move the needle, she says. So despite all the commotion that unions created last year, including that champagne pop a year ago today, the share of workers belonging to a union has actually fallen. It's now at a record low of about 10%. Andrea Shu, NPR News. And we note that Amazon is among NPR's financial supporters and pays to distribute some of our content. We can generate AI art with keystrokes and swipes. Some people question the ethics. AI pulls from images created by actual human artists to make its creations. Later today in All Things Considered, what does a digital artist behind some of these AI works have to say about whether AI art is art? 
You can tune in for that live on your member station's website at npr.org or on something called the radio. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9.37 and coming up in a few minutes, Chicago is on the brink of choosing a new mayor after the incumbent mayor lost in the first round of voting. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. And the Umbrella Arts Center with Middleton Heights, the tale of a Filipino family pursuing the American dream. Now through April 23rd, theumbrellaarts.org. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. And right now, the impact of your generosity is doubled. We have a dollar-for-dollar match, in effect. And that means when you call 1-800-909-9287 or you go to WBUR.org and you make a generous contribution, your monthly contribution will be doubled. So let's say you decide to make your tax-deductible monthly contribution of $10 a month it becomes $20 a month. Maybe $50 a month is right for you. That becomes $100 a month. Maybe uh, it's time for you to give, it feels right for you to give, and you are ready to give $1,000. Well, that becomes $2,000. The point is we are listener-supported. You are listening. We are counting on you. Uh, Listener support is the largest share of our funding. This is how we make Weekend Edition and all of our programming possible to serve you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. WBUR will always be free and open to everyone, but it takes investment from people who care about it to allow us to thrive. And when you do this, you can actually get a gift yourself. So today, if you give even $12 a month, not only will your gift be doubled with that dollar for dollar match, um, but you also could get a $50 gift card to Weston Nurseries as our thank you. Weston Nurseries locations in Hopkinton, uh, Helmsford, Hingham, and Middleborough. You'll find great selections of plants. These April showers are going to turn into May flowers. So that gift card could go a long way to your flower bed or to your vegetable garden. So think about how much WBUR means to you and consider giving us a gift today and maximizing that gift with the dollar for dollar match that our WBUR Murrow Society members are contributing. And you can make that contribution when you go to WBUR.org or when you call 1-800-909-9287. We're asking for you to give this monthly contribution to support our journalism and all of our programming that uh, you count on. We're really only as strong as the support that we have from you. So please call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Make your monthly contribution and have it matched dollar for dollar. Now that dollar for dollar match is in effect right now. So go ahead and take advantage of the opportunity to double the impact of your generosity. And we're able to do this thanks to the 
t- thanks to the generosity of some members of WBUR's Murrow Society. So you can, in effect, match their generosity by making your contribution right now. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Chicago chooses a new mayor on Tuesday. The incumbent, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, finished a distant third in the first round. Both candidates in Tuesday's runoffs are Democrats. Republicans in Chicago are as scarce as palm trees. But each candidate has a distinctly different idea of what being a Democrat means. From member station WBEZ, Maria Wolfel reports. In last month's initial race between nine mayoral candidates, you could not have chosen ones more dissimilar than the top two vote-getters now in the runoff. It's a point each of them either start or conclude their stump speeches with these days. Here's Paul Vallis. You have been presented a choice of which two pathways the city will follow, and these two pathways could never be more dissimilar. Vallis, who's running as a Democrat, is a 69-year-old white, tough-on-crime candidate backed by the police union. Then there's 47-year-old Brandon Johnson, a black progressive candidate backed by the union for teachers. This election is about a choice between the stale, broken status quo and a new political collaboration that is built around unity and understanding. These two candidates are opposed on how they'd approach nearly every major issue on the table. Crime has been chief among them, but what's perhaps most distinctive is their different ties to public education. Vallis is a veteran public administrator who got his big start as head of Chicago Public Schools in the 90s. He has since built a controversial reputation as the Mr. Fix-It of troubled school districts, building droves of privately run but publicly funded charter schools in the cities he's worked. Talking about himself in the third person, he puts it like this. Paul Vallis, the walk, is a public administrative version of a first responder. And right now our house is on fire and its occupants are in danger. Johnson is a former social studies teacher and an organizer with the progressive Chicago Teachers Union, which has grown more politically aggressive in the past decade, in part in response to policies pushed by administrators like Vallis. But more so than anything else, crime has been top of mind for both candidates and voters as the city continues to grapple with staggering gun violence. Vallis has promised to make Chicago, quote, the safest city in America by bringing back retired police officers to boost ranks. And he tells voters his opponent would slash the police budget, putting Johnson on the defensive. Paul, hear me. I'm not going to defund the police. I've said that multiple times. I have 3,000 words on my website around public safety. None of those words say defund the police. The election has become a battle between old-school Democrats and those who want to push the party more to the left, according to Jaime Dominguez, a professor at Northwestern University. The notion of progressivism is on the ballot. 
the emergence of, for example, newly elected younger left-leaning elected leaders, uh, particularly amongst Blacks and Latinos, is challenging the vision and priorities of the status quo within the Democratic establishment. And in a city that is largely segregated, no Chicago election comes without racial overtones. Black and Latino voters largely went for other candidates in the first round of the election, with Johnson and Vallis enjoying the majority of their support from white residents. Both candidates have been jockeying for endorsements from establishment Black and Latino leaders to try to sway the voters who didn't support them initially. For NPR News, I'm Mariah Wolfel in Chicago. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 946 and coming up at 10 o'clock. Wait, wait, don't tell me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms with farm-to-table soups, salads, and sandwiches featuring ingredients that change daily and seasonally. VolanteFarms.com. The Handel and Haydn Society. H&H breathes new life into Bach's soul-stirring Easter Oratorio tomorrow at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handleandhyden.org. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio is WBUR's Candace Springer, and we are reminding you that this is a great opportunity for you to support Weekend Edition and all the programming you count on here on WBUR because we have a dollar-for-dollar match in effect. What that means. First, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and think about what you would like your monthly contribution to be. Whatever you decide, it will be doubled. Let's say you settle on giving WBUR $20 a month. WBUR gets $40 a month thanks to the generosity of some members of our Murrow Society who have contributed this extra pool of money to match your contribution dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. For every person you hear on air and read online, there are many more people behind the scenes, and this is your team. We're committed to bringing you stories that reveal important truths, stories that help you think harder, and stories that help make um, your world more understandable, that that just show you what the impact of all of the things that you hear has on your community and on the world. So help us continue that important work. Make your tax-deductible monthly contribution today at WBUR org or call 1-800-909-9287. And as Sharon said, we have some members of our Murrow Society who have stepped up to double your gift. The impact of your gift is now doubled. So think about how much WBUR means to you and give as much as you can. And keep in mind, you can get a $50 gift card to Weston Nurseries. That's our thanks when you make your gift of $12 a month. And, of course, that will be doubled uh, because of this dollar-for-dollar match that's in effect. Once again, the way to make your generous monthly contribution, and we thank you in advance, you can call 1-800-909-9287, or you can go to WBUR.org. Arlo Guthrie is one of the most enduring figures of American folk rock. His 18-minute song and monologue mix, Alice's Restaurant, was a massive hit. He performed at Woodstock and has maintained an avid following for more than half a century. Guthrie is 75 now. He's had some health issues and is retired, partly. He's coming back to the stage for a handful of shows, including tonight in Boston. It will be more storytelling than performance. 
Arlo Guthrie still embodies the spirit of his father, the legendary Woody Guthrie. In the 1930s and 40s, Woody Guthrie wrote and sang about freedom and his vision of America. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Children sang the song in just about every American classroom, but Arlo tells WBUR's Lisa Mullins that he and his sister didn't know that when they were kids in New York. We had changed schools, and I remember walking in there, and our music teacher led the entire assembly in this land, this year land, and I was the only one that didn't know the words. I mean, I knew that my father had written the song, but I had never bothered to learn it. I didn't think that anybody else had learned it. And so I ran home and told my dad what had happened. So he sat me down in the backyard with a little guitar that he'd given me, taught me the chords, taught me the words, and I've been singing it for the rest of my life. As I went walking that ribbon of highway outside above me an endless skyway I saw below me a golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land has become more important as time goes by when my father wrote it in 19 I guess 41 42 somewhere back in those years it wasn't critically important it was only afterwards during the 50s and 60s and 70s that his songs became known. And there were people coming to see me who were hoping that in some way I would carry on his work. And I never felt uncomfortable sharing my father. I wouldn't have done it exclusively. I wouldn't have been a clone of Woody Guthrie. I saw a lot of people come to our house, dressed like my dad, talked like my dad, sang like my dad, wrote songs like my dad, but they weren't my dad. Mm. And I thought his songs are important to a lot of people, and I owe it to them to continue singing them and to continue writing about the same things in a world that I was familiar with. One of the things my father noted was that it's better to fail at being yourself than to succeed at being somebody else. And I never wanted to be him, but I did want to be myself in a way that he would have approved, frankly. I mean, I'm a kid. I'm a son. And I wanted to bring it to a broader audience so that we could all laugh together and sing together and enjoy life together. And then there's this Arlo original. This song's called Alice's Restaurant. It's about Alice and the restaurant. Was the success of Alice's Restaurant a blessing or a curse? And we should say, Alice's Restaurant, I mean, not many people have a song that comes out at 18 minutes at a time when everything else is coming out at three and three and a half minutes, becomes a major hit and has a movie made about it. Well, nobody in their right mind creates an 18-minute monologue to be played on radio. And that was certainly not my intent. My intent was to stand up on stage and waste 18 minutes of my time so that I had less songs to learn. <laughs> it was really simple. Uh, and I found a way to do that. So 
I was entertaining at the same time that I was wondering how the hell are you going to remain on stage for another hour? What else you got? Well, luckily for me, I had my father and I would sing some of his songs. And luckily for me, I started writing some of my own songs. So I kept adding to my ability to remain on stage and not waste everybody's time, but certainly give them enough so that it wasn't a waste of their time to be there. I thought I did rather well. I think you did really well. <laughs> you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. The performances that you're going to be doing, including in Boston, you've decided to be in conversation with someone. It's mostly a conversation, if not all. I wonder how you made that decision and what you want to say. Well, there was a time when I was able to do 30 nights in a row. Each night was two hours long or something like that, two and a half hours. I mean, it was fun. It was great. Look, when you're 18 and you're a guy and you don't need a reservation at a restaurant because everybody knows your face, I would recommend it to anyone. But to live 50 or 60 years or 70 years like that, it gets a little nuts. And over time, my voice couldn't physically handle it. The travel, the big band, the lights, the sound, the whole thing it took was getting to be too much. Your four children are all in music, some more than others. Is there a song that you would want or maybe have imparted to them that you think kind of synthesizes your philosophy? There was a song that came to me through my sister, Nora, that was my father's lyrics, a song called My Peace. I added music to it and frankly turned it into a song. I had to change a few words around because it was a poem. It's my peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. I love that idea. I mean, you can tell your kids, you can explain to your kids about why the sky is blue and all that kind of stuff that they want to know when they're little. But the truth is, it's how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the world, your place in it. Not to get so frantic when times get crazy and not to get too excited when things go well. There's a balance. And if my kids have learned that through songs like My Peace, more power to them. You end a lot of your concerts with My Peace. And I have to say, you know how to create many special moments in your concerts with chuckles, with uh, irreverence, with irony, and with just gentle messages like that. You do it so well, Arlo. Thank you. Thank you. My peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. My peace is all I've ever had. It's all I ever knew. Arlo Guthrie will be on stage at the Schubert Theater in Boston tonight for What's Left of Me, a show with stories and rarely seen footage. He spoke with WBUR's Lisa Mullins. My peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. 
Wow, what a beautiful piece from WBUR's Lisa Mullins. Oh my gosh, I just loved that. This is Candace from WBUR City Space here, asking you to think about how much you count on WBUR every day, on the radio, online, with podcasts or even events at City Space, and all the ways that you keep up with what's happening in Boston, Washington, the world. It all adds up. WBUR is worth a monthly contribution today. Make your tax-deductible gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we have a double for uh, a double impact match on the table. That's right. It's a dollar for dollar match. So when you make your contribution right now, it will be doubled. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And I mean, as you are probably still basking in the glow of that Lisa Mullins conversation with Arlo Guthrie, I mean, it was it's just a beautiful conversation. It's, you know, a long form. It breathes. It's what we love to be able to give you here at WBUR with a veteran journalist, with, uh, you know, actually brilliant journalist, Lisa Mullins, <laughs> being able to have that uh, really deep conversation with the living legend, Ar- Arlo Guthrie. 1-800-909-9287. Your dollars make this possible. We're listener supported. The largest share of our funding comes from you. So when you take part in this dollar for dollar match right now, the impact of your generous contribution is doubled. Thank you. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.